Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. to a message this morning, and I'm going to do something a little bit different from what I would normally do, um, and this is not because I am ultra-religious, uh, it's also not because I grew up Afrikaans. Uh, if there's one thing about Afrikaans people, how many of you know they love many things, and one of those things is being barefoot, right? They love being barefoot. Um, they also love shorts. When it gets really cold in Bloemfontein, the farmers put on two pairs of shorts, um, no, no matter how cold it is, you won't see them wear long pants. They have like a principle of short shorts. And so, um, and so this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different, something that you've probably never seen me do before. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to take my shoes off this morning because I want to I share a message with you entitled, Take Off Your Shoes. And so I'm going to preach to you this morning barefoot um, on the stage here and, uh, and, and I want to I speak to you from the power of really understanding who God is, really understanding the faith that we carry in God and the sovereignty that He has and the power that He has and how we can come to a place of surrendering to that power as opposed to walking in our own strength. And so I've got my shoes off this morning and, uh, and uh, I, would, I would tell you to take yours off as well. But some people may leave the building. So we are going to just, you can keep your shoes on, but take them off spiritually this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put these up here. I want to preach to you barefoot this morning. And, um, and I want to show you something in the Word that I believe is going to speak powerfully to your faith. Take off your shoes. Let me go ahead and just pray for us right now as we get into this message. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you that right now we can approach the throne of your grace with confidence, with boldness, Lord. Thank you, God, that all of us know that we are accepted in the most holy place, in your presence, in the church, in this family, Lord God, in a relationship with you, that there is nothing that separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God, that right now we can sit back and we can receive from your Holy Spirit and from your word the truths, Lord God, that, that can change our lives, that can transform our thinking, Lord God, and help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Help us this morning, Lord God, to take off our shoes and to truly surrender to your power and your ability. We give you all the glory for that in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody shouted and said, amen, amen. amen. All right, so how many of you here today, if you were totally honest, would admit to regularly facing the torment of anxiety. Like it's something that is so common to your life, anxiety, worry, fear, concern, is almost like a constant companion in your life. We're in a safe space here this morning, so you can raise your hand. If anxiety is something that you battle with, you can go ahead and raise your hand. Come on, that's most of us here this morning. Anxiety is something that we grapple with. It's something that we struggle with. It's, uh, it's something that has the ability to really dominate our perspective. Fear can become so big in our lives that we can see almost nothing else, not even the power of God. 
Not, not even the ability of God. We might read this Bible every day and walk out and face our first meeting on a Monday morning and instantly forget what we had read and just be overcome by concern and by worry. This is something that is a reality for many of us. Fear has the ability to dominate our perspective, but also to drain us of our strength. It's like when you have a, a bath full of water and you pull the plug and instantly the, the water runs out. If you are encouraged, if you're strengthened, if you're equipped, if you're ready and you step up to do something, when fear hits, it's like we, you instantly pull the plug and you just feel your strength draining out. Have any of you ever experienced that? It, it, it almost has the ability to cut us off at the knees emotionally. Like we were so ready to act in obedience to God. We were so ready to take that step of faith. We were so ready to do what we knew was the right thing to do. And as we came uh, to that place of making that decision, we stood up and we were ready. Fear hit us like a wave. And it cuts us off at the knees and we sit back down on the couch and we, we sit there pondering how we even dared to think we could be so bold. It has the ability to stop us in our tracks, to rob us of our sleep, to keep us up at night, to affect our relationships and, and our faith. It can dominate our perspective. Charles Spurgeon spoke on anxiety often, and one of the things he said is, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, it only empties today of its strength. Anxiety will take your strength from you. Now, for a lot of Christians, it's kind of been such a constant companion that we don't even fight it anymore. We don't even deal with it anymore. We don't even address it anymore. In fact, some Christians find their identity in anxiety. I am an anxious person, is what they would say. They've owned it. It's become a part of who they are. They wouldn't know how to live life if they weren't dealing with anxiety all of the time. It's like something we've become so comfortable with, something that we've just made peace with. It's just going to be a part of my life, and we no longer believe God for something greater than that. I want to ask Pastor Will and Pastor Brent to come forward quickly this morning and just stand here next to me just as an illustration and I'm going to ask Pastor Will, you can come this side, and you can just hook into my arm here, and this is Jesus. On the other hand, we have Brent, you can hook in on this side, this is anxiety. <laughs> it's just an illustration. But you know, we walk like this. We walk arm in arm with both Jesus and anxiety. And then we try to claim that we're living God's best for our lives. And Jesus looks over at anxiety on the, on the other side and says, who's that guy? Kind of like, who is this guy that you're walking with? And it's like, Jesus, it's just kind of like an annoying friend. He's going to be around, so just kind of deal with him. But, you know, this is not how God wants you to live your life. Jesus in one hand, anxiety in the other. In fact, what the scriptures tell us is that these two things are opposed to each other. Because if you truly put your faith in Jesus, you wouldn't be able to hold on to anxiety. And if you focused on your anxiety, 
you've clearly lost touch with Jesus. The idea isn't that we try and hold both, but that we actually use anxiety to press us deeper into Jesus. This is the picture. Yes, anxiety is a reality because we live in a broken world and we face many things, but we're supposed to use that as a catalyst to press us deeper into Jesus to the point where we don't even know what anxiety looks like. That's the picture that Jesus has for us. Amen? Amen. Come on, let's give these guys a round of applause. I remember when I was, I was younger, I was going to go play rugby provincial trials uh, and try and make the provincial side in rugby. And it was something that I was really worried about because it was something I really wanted to be able to do and uh, spoke to my dad about it. And I spoke to my dad about how slim my chances were. I was kind of convincing myself beforehand I was making peace with the fact that I might not make the team. And so I'm, I'm kind of giving all the reasons as to why I might not succeed. Have you ever done that? Kind of convinced yourself out of something before you've even tried? And I said, you know, my chances are slim because I don't come from one of the traditionally big rugby schools. And a lot of the other boys are part of clubs and they have, you know, they know the coaches and they're much bigger than me. And I'm kind of giving different reasons. And my dad told me a story at that time. He told me the story of a man who was traveling across the country and he was traveling through the countryside and uh, darkness had fallen. It was in the evening and as he was driving through these, these a very dark region and, and all of these different farms out in, in the middle of the country, he, he got a flat tire and he had to pull over by the side of the road. He was alone. He had this tire and he needed to change it in the dark and so he went to the boot of his car, for our Americans here today, the trunk of his car, and, uh, and he opened it up and, and he started to look for the jack so that he could change the tire. And in scratching through the boot, all of a sudden he remembered where he had left it back home in the garage. He never put it in the car. And so now he has a flat tire, he's in the middle of nowhere, and he isn't able to change the tire. He needs a jack. So he looks around to see what he might be able to do or able to use. And, and as he looks off in the distance, he sees the light of a farmhouse, a single, a single farmhouse out in the distance. And he thinks to himself, there's nothing else or no one else around here. That is my best hope is that I would walk out and ask them if they have a jack that I could loan. And so he sets off in the darkness towards the light. And as he walks, he realizes the distance was a little bit further than he thought. And he walks and the thought arises in his mind, what if I get there and they don't have a jack? And now I've spent all of this time and all of this effort walking in the darkness trying to get to this place and I'm going to get there and they're going to tell me, sorry, we can't help you. And this thought begins to torment him a little bit and it comes up again and again. And the further he walks, the more he convinces himself that they're not going to have what, what he needs. Eventually, he arrives at the front door of the farmhouse. He knocks on the door. The farmer opens, and he looks at him, and he says, I don't even want your stupid jack. He's talked himself out of it before he's even arrived there. And that's what anxiety does to us. It makes us give up before we've even tried, before we've even started, before we've even taken the first step. This is what happens when we focus on everything that can go wrong as opposed to everything that could go right. 
There are so many ways that, yes, we can fail, but what if we don't? What would that look like? What would that bring to us? When we believe the negative report, like Joshua, when he sent out the spies into the promised land, what, if we believe the negative report, we will never take the ground that God has called us to take. What negativities have you believed that have hamstrung you from being able to, fu to fulfill God's call on your life? And this is why God does not want us to entertain or become friends with anxiety. Anxiety is not your friend. If you, if you grew up like I did, there was a moment when you knew that your parents were serious. And it's when they told you they were not your friend. It's like, don't play, I'm not, I'm not your play friend. It's like, it's, I'm translating. Anxiety is not something that God wants us to entertain, but something he wants us to overcome by faith. He's not saying just ignore it and it'll go away. This is not denial. This is not, you know, being unaware of the actual circumstances, but this is replacing anxiety with something. It needs to re be replaced with something real, something more powerful. And that something real and something more powerful is our faith in who God is. It's our trust in how committed he is to us. And so we see when Jesus was on the boat asleep with the disciples and a storm started to hit the boat so that the waves started crashing over the deck of that boat and they believed that they were about to perish and they woke Jesus up and they said, Jesus, you are sleeping and we are perishing. And it tells us this is, was, was Jesus' response in Matthew 8, verse 26. It says, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Can Jesus ask us that question today? Why, church, are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. If Jesus is in your boat, why are you afraid? I can tell you why. Jesus tells us why. Your faith is small. You're not trusting. You're not focusing on who Jesus is. You're focusing on the waves. Another example that Jesus gives just two chapters earlier in Matthew 6, he's talking about provision. Now, I can tell you now that I can almost guarantee that if we ask the question, what is it that makes you anxious in this place today? The majority of you would say finances. For some of you, you're in a fortunate position to not have that stress. But for most of us, finances can be something really stressful, something that can cause anxiety. And so people felt this way, and Jesus addresses it head on in Matthew 6, verse 27 and verse 30. He says, first of all, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? I, I, this is not my words in case you're getting mad at me this morning. I'm not saying this. Jesus is saying, how many of you can help yourselves by being anxious? No matter how bad the situation is, anxiety is not going to help the situation. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't, you know, one translation says, doesn't add to your stature. You can't make yourself grow taller through anxiety. You'll only make yourself shrink back and become smaller. You'll drain yourself of your energy. So Jesus says, how many of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to their lives? He goes on in verse 30, and he says, but if God so clothes 
the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If God takes care of the grass and feeds the birds, why do you think that he would not take care of you? Why are you anxious? Let me tell you why. Oh, you of little faith. You haven't trusted in who God is. This is what produces fear and, and, and emphasizes anxiety in our lives. It makes it bigger, amplifies anxiety. It makes it bigger than what it, what it really is. Many years ago when I was a, a youth pastor, I worked for a number of years uh, at a church on the western side of Johannesburg. And uh, at a point, you know, and, and during that time, obviously earning a youth pastor salary, which is, which is tight to say the least. And, um, you know, I, I, the pastor would, would walk through the parking lot and some coins would fall out of his pocket and they'd be like, there's your salary. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not what happened. That's just a joke. But I moved from a church in the West Rand to becoming uh, an associate pastor at a church in the north. And uh, here in the, in the northern suburbs where most of us stay. And at that time, I was driving quite far to get to church. And I had to be at church every day and in the evenings often and over the weekends. And um, had three small boys. And it was quite a drive. I had to get on the highway. And I had to drive several off-ramps to get to this place. It took me quite a while to get there every day. And, uh, and I felt like it was taking time away from my family and taking time away from me spending, uh, being with my boys. And it was really causing me some stress, just the, just the drive. You know, the pastor says, okay, we're going to have a prayer meeting Saturday night. And I'm like, oh man, that's like adding a lot of hours to the calendar for me. Whereas if I stayed closer, um, I'd be able to be more available. And so it was something that stressed me out. And so as I started working for that church, every Sunday after church, I would go looking for homes. I would look online, I'd look in the newspapers, and I would see certain homes in the area, and I'd go and view them, even though I couldn't afford any of them, just hoping that somewhere I could strike a deal. Somewhere I could talk to an agent, and somebody might be desperate to sell, and I could do that. And I did that for weeks, and was never able to find anything that I could afford in the area. And I remember kind of becoming a little bit despondent, feeling like I'm never going to be able to actually even move to the northern suburbs and I was in kind of the lobby area of the church that day, and I was standing with a man who was a real great man of faith, just somebody who carried belief as a culture in their lives. Have you ever been around people like that? People that are just so quietly confident in who their God is. It's like they, you never see them stressed. You never see them worried. They just, it's, like they, it's like they know that the game has been rigged in their favor. It's always going to work out for me. I remember him just randomly asking me the question, what can I pray for you for? What do you, what do you need? And I looked at him and I said, I really need a home. I've been trying to purchase one. I've been looking every weekend, but I can't. The problem is I can't afford anything in this area. And he looked at me and he said, that's a small thing for God to do. That's a small thing for God to do. What is it that you have in your life that you have kind of made impossible, not only for you, but for God? You've judged that to be something that not even God would be able to do. 
an impossibility even for the creator of heaven and earth. Isn't it interesting how we equate God's ability as only slightly above our own ability? Only a little bit more. And we can, we can expect miracles as long as we can figure out logically how God would do that miracle. As long as there's a clear path, rational path, to how the miracle might occur, then we can f- we feel like, yeah, God, God could arrange things for me like that. Oh, the agent dropped 1% of his commission. Yes, that's what I was waiting for, God, you know. We can believe for that, but we struggle to believe that God could walk, have somebody walk over to us and just give us a set of keys and say, that home is yours. We don't believe that God can do that. We struggle to believe that God could do that. In Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21, it speaks about how we give glory in the church to Jesus throughout all the generations for who he is forever and ever. This is the glory that belongs to him. Why does it belong to him? He is the one now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think or imagine could be possible. According to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church. You see, the Bible says that when we give glory to God, we give glory to Him, we, we declare that He is the one who is able to do more than what we could even ask. What could you ask for today? God can do more. What could you think about today? God can do more. What could you even begin to imagine today? God can do more. That's why the glory belongs to him, far more abundantly than all that we can even begin to imagine. Let me ask you this question. Is that your level of faith today? Is that your level of faith? Have you set the bar of your expectation at the level of more than I can imagine? Or have you made God a little bit lower than the angels, a little bit higher than man? You see, when God first revealed himself to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, when they were in slavery in Egypt, it was to a man by the name of Moses. And Moses, if you know the story, had been raised in Pharaoh's house, but knew that he was an Israelite and saw his people being treated harshly under the orders of Pharaoh. The people of Israel, even though they originally came as, as being invited as guests of the, of the empire of Egypt, they came in and over time their numbers began to grow so, so large that they became a threat to the empire. And the Pharaoh was worried about an uprising. 
And so he instructed all the taskmasters to take the, the Israelites as slaves and then to treat them harshly, more than even just a, a normal common slave in the time, to treat them harshly. And Moses started to have a, a desire or a burden for his people. And so at one point, when he saw a taskmaster beating up one of the people of, is, of Israel, he stood up for that man and, and started to beat up this Egyptian but went a little bit too far and ended up killing him. So Moses became a murderer in that moment. And later on, he, he, he tried to hide the body, and later on he heard some people talk about it, and he realized that this is going to come out, that I've killed somebody, I'm going to be in trouble, and so he fled into the desert. That was when Moses was 40 years old. We meet Moses in Exodus 3, 40 years later. He's now a shepherd looking after sheep in the back of the desert somewhere. This is what happens. The people of Israel are crying out to God because of how harshly they're being treated. They're asking God to deliver them. And so God, like he always does, he shows up. And even though Moses is a man who has committed murder, and even though he has fled from his calling, and even though he's just a shepherd out in the middle of the desert somewhere, God has a divine appointment for his life. And we see that encounter here in Exodus 3, verse 1 to 6. God shows up. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, when it speaks about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a theophany. It's, a, it's God showing up uh, before Jesus was incarnate in the flesh. God shows up in this moment. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. Take off your shoes. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God who is faithful through the generations, and I have shown up. So take off your shoes, for you stand on holy ground. God appears to Moses in this burning bush, and, and Moses at first walks past, and it catches his eye, specifically because the bush has got fire beset all around it, but the bush itself, the leaves and the twigs, are not being burned. Moses recognizes this as a marvel and he turns aside to see it because it's not normal to output energy without needing fuel. It's not, it goes against the laws of science to say that something can burn without fuel. And how many of you would agree today that that is an abnormal experience, that it is not the human experience? If we output energy, we're burning something at the same time. The human experience is that when we run, we grow weary. 
Anybody who's ever tried to run, now that it's summer, everybody's trying to run. The first thing you realize when you start running is that it was a mistake. (laughs) When you run, when we run, we grow tired. When we don't eat, what happens? We feel weak. We feel faint. When we stay awake for too many hours, when we don't sleep at night, we realize we have no energy. We fall asleep. So how can a fire burn and not need something to burn? This is the difference between us and God. This is why God is not you and you shouldn't evaluate him at the level of your ability. The Bible says God doesn't sleep. He doesn't need sleep. But you need sleep. We need sleep. God doesn't. When we begin to feel tired late at night, it's like a constant reminder every day, you're not God. But there is one who does not sleep. He doesn't need energy to burn because his energy doesn't run out. And God speaks to Moses like he speaks to you this morning. He knows Moses' name. I think it's so beautiful. He doesn't just say, shepherd man over there. He says, Moses, come closer. Take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. I am God. God goes on to explain to Moses what his name is. Further on in the book of Exodus, God has this self-revelation where he says, he explains his name and his name that, that Moses is to carry before Pharaoh and before the people of Israel is, I am. What's your name? My name is I am. I wonder if Moses did a second take. Can you just repeat, like, I'm not sure if I heard that. You just said, I am. You didn't say your name. No, my name is I am. I am. The Hebrew name Yahweh, which is just a, you know, how we sound that word out, Y-H-W-H, means self-sufficient, all-encompassing, uncreated. You see, the name of God wasn't I need. The name of God wasn't I want, I desire, I, I, I lack. His name is I am because he has everything he needs. Did you know today that God doesn't need you? He doesn't need any of us. That's not why he engaged with us. He didn't engage with us because he needed something from us. He would have been perfectly fine without us. No, he engaged with us because he loves us. Because he wants us. That's why God has called you. So when when God asks you to sacrifice something for him, when he asks you to give like the Philippians gave, when, when God asks you to serve like Jesus served, it's not because he needs anything from you. It's because he's trying to get something to you. His heart and his desire is for you. He has no need for your service. He's chosen sovereignly to work through us. Paul tried to explain this to the men of Athens when he encountered these philosophers sitting around on Mars Hill. In Acts 17, verse 24 to 25, he speaks to them and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't need your fancy buildings. 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind. God's primary identity is not the needer, but the giver. He is a giver. He's all sufficient. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is who God is. We don't serve a needy God, but a gracious God, a generous God. So God is the giver. He is the one who serves. He is the one who models servanthood even through Jesus. This is what Philippians is really all about, showing us how we can become servants like Jesus was a servant. Mark 10, 43 to 45 says, But whoever would be great among you, you must, uh, among you must be your servant. If you want to be great, serve. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. Why do we so often believe that serving is beyond us? You see, this is when we begin to take off our shoes. This is when we begin to realize the holiness of our calling. This is when we begin to recognize how powerful it is for us to lay down our own pride, our own strength, our own ability, the things we walk in and say, I am a servant. John the Baptist said, here comes Jesus, the one whose sandal I'm not worthy even to untie. There's a humility that comes from knowing who our God is and trusting in his power. He goes on to say to Moses in Exodus 3, 7 to 8, he says, let me tell you why I'm here. Let me tell you what the plan is. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. How many of you have gone through a difficult time and then wondered whether or not God saw what you've been through? Whether God sees what you're struggling with? We feel like God is busy with other things. He doesn't see me. But he says to Moses, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry. How many of you have prayed prayers and wondered, do these prayers even ever leave this room? Does God consider them? Does he hear them? God says, I have heard your cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. There's not a thing that you can suffer. If God knows every hair that is on your head and not one of them falls to the ground without his knowledge, if God is that aware, you can bet that he is aware of your suffering. There's nothing that you can go through that God is unaware of. And here's the beautiful part. He says, and I have come down to deliver them. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for all of us. We were slaves to sin. Our taskmaster treated us harshly, destroyed us. And God saw our affliction. He heard our cries for deliverance. He, he, he knew our suffering and he sent his son Jesus to deliver us. He came down to deliver us. How powerful that God does that for us. 
You see, previously Moses wanted to deliver his people. That's how he got into trouble. He tried to do it himself. And he ended up disillusioned in the backside of the desert. So God in this moment is really saying, Moses, you've tried in your own strength. But what I need you to do right now is I need you to recognize that I am the sovereign God, the creator of heaven and earth. I need you to recognize that your strength doesn't count for anything in regards to delivering people from bondage. So what I want you to do is I want you to understand who I am, to take off your shoes, to lay down your own efforts, to stop running in your own strength, to stop trying to fix yourself and fix your situation and fix everything around you. Some of you have burnt out trying to do that. Instead, what I want you to do is take off your shoes and come closer. Take off your shoes and come closer. Come closer to me. You see, when Moses took off his shoes, he was in contact with the ground. And God wants us to be in contact with his power. He wants us to be in contact with his glory. He wants us to feel his sovereignty beneath our feet as the foundation of our lives. I don't want you to be out of touch, church, with who I am. I am your God. I am the creator of heaven and earth. So take off your shoes and step into my presence so that you may know that I am God, so that you might find rest, so that you might fight peace. Through Zechariah, God speaks and he says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says God. It's time for us to take off our shoes. Your feet represent your strength, your ability, your action, your your dominance, your authority. If we look in, in, in Joshua 10 verse 24, It says, and when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. It symbolizes victory. And God says, I don't want you to fight for victory in your own strength. I want you to take off your shoes and put your foot by my authority, right on the neck of anxiety, right on the neck of fear, right on the neck of your circumstances, because I am here to deliver you. It's a recognition of His sovereignty. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, shoes were not allowed to be worn by the priests in the temple. In some church traditions and denominations, in the world today, when, when certain priests or pastors are serving at the altar, they'll still take off their shoes to represent what the priests in the Old Testament had to do. If you're going to serve in God's house, you've got to take off your shoes. They weren't allowed to sweat 
In the book of Ezekiel, it tells us that they had to wear certain clothes to make sure that when they were serving in the temple, not a single drop of perspiration would fall on the floor. Because we cannot be saved by our own works. We cannot be saved by the sweat of our brow. It's coming to a place of trust in God. Now I know what you're thinking. He's been going for 25 minutes and he has not yet mentioned Philippians. So here it is. Philippians 4 verse 19 to 20 says, And my God will supply. Who will supply? My God. God supplies. He's the supplier. He's the giver. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the glory of God. He is the one who doesn't need anything but gives everything. That's why we worship Him. That's why we glorify Him. That's why there's no one like Him. That's why He is the one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who's worthy of our praise because He's the only one who doesn't need anything but yet gives everything. Who else could be worthy of our praise? He's the supplier, not you, not us. God says, I want to reveal my glory to you and through you. You see, the ultimate aim is not to escape anxiety necessarily, but to allow it to usher us into the healing presence of Jesus so that we can come to that place where regardless of what's going on around us, we can take off our shoes and sit at His feet. This is the one thing that is necessary that Jesus spoke to Martha about. In Luke 10 verse 41, the Lord answered her and said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. How many of you would say that that includes me? But one thing is necessary. What was that one thing? Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet. Let God be God in your life. Come sit at my feet until you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is God and you are not. Philippians 4, 6 to 7 says, listen to this. Do not be anxious. Now, some people get mad at me when I tell them that because they say, but you're not someone who struggles with anxiety, so you don't have, you don't have reference for what it feels like. And I'm going, yeah, that's 100% true. I'm generally not an anxious person. But I'm not actually saying it on my authority. Jesus said, do not be anxious. He didn't say, hey guys, I know it's, a t- it's tough, but try be a little less anxious sometimes. And only if you feel like you can manage it. No, he just says outright, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer, you see you're replacing it by faith. Prayer is an act of faith. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, expectation. You already know who you, who you are in Christ. You already know what you have in God. Let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen when you take your anxiety and replace it with prayer and with faith? The peace of God, which transcends understanding. It's a peace that you have even when you shouldn't have peace 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, that's how we glorify God. We glorify Him by relying on Him, by relying on His grace, regardless of the circumstances, and believe that surely my God will supply all of my need in Christ Jesus. And we have many needs. There are many things that we need and God is able to supply them. But you know what you need more than anything else? Strength to be content. You need the strength to be content. Final verse, Philippians 4, 11 to 13, and 13 says, not that I am speaking of being in need. Paul says, I'm so glad that you sent me a financial gift to help me with my needs, but I'm not speaking about being in need for I have learned, I don't even consider myself when I'm in lack to be in need. I, I know how it is to have a lot of stuff and I know how it is to be very little and I don't consider myself needy regardless of the circumstances because I have learned that in whatever situation I am in to be content. Why? How can I be content when I'm in lack, when I'm facing hardship? Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So you need the strength of Jesus to be content. And that strength is available to you through the grace of God. All you need to do, church, all we need to do is take off our shoes and recognize that we are standing on holy ground. God is present. He is present in your life, not just in this building, but when you go home, He is with you. So don't rely on your own strength. Take your shoes off and sit at His feet. Amen? God will supply every one of your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul talks to the church in Philippi and he says, guys, rejoice. Just rejoice. Just keep rejoicing. Just always rejoice. And once you're done rejoicing, rejoice some more because you live in the presence of God and He is always enough. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning?